I do have a clip from Steve Ritchie, um, the gentleman that uh, Dr. Dalcourt debated, and I'll actually post a link in the description. Um, and I'll go ahead and take the time to say, if you like CSG content, give us a like, give us a share, subscribe, all that fun stuff, and um, get everybody involved. We're trying to get to a thousand people on YouTube and on TikTok. So definitely get us out there because we definitely want to get the gospel out to everybody, right? So I do so want Tyler, to play... Yeah, what's up? There, could I say one more thing about Sibelius and then we can play the yeah, clip? Yeah, yeah, um, please. So one thing that's very important, and, and Dr. Dalcor, you actually said this jokingly at the front, um, this, the importance of why analogies are bad. Sibelius was widely known and written about using the sun analogy, how the rays of the sun and the heat of the sun being the, the, the sun, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit were just emanations are coming out or they're different modes of the father who would have been the actual orb of the sun himself. Um, so I've, I've done extensive work on TikTok about this. There's no analogy for the Trinity that's sufficient because an analogy is taking one set of things and comparing them or likening them to another set of things. And mm-hmm. the category distinction is there's nothing or no one like the triune God. So I, I see a lot of people in the fundamentalist evangelical world saying, well, I give the water analogy or I give the four leaf clover analogy um, mm-hmm. because it, it helps make it understandable for people. And I want to stress to um, our brothers and sisters in Christ God doesn't need our help to make his word more simple in order for people to believe it. He just needs us to proclaim his word. And those that the father's given to the son, the Holy Spirit will illuminate and will regenerate their heart at the proclamation of that Trinitarian gospel. So that's one thing I did. I I thought it was funny that one of the biggest, the earliest modalistic monarchian heretics, Sibelius, actually used analogies. This is something that in the non-denom kind of mainstream body of Christianity, especially in America, the analogies are coming back to try to point people to the Trinity. And and I appeal to anyone listening to this, please don't just preach the word because Trinities or analogies don't point people to the Trinity. They point people to heresy. Right. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. In fact, ice is a popular one. Uh, T.D. Jakes uses it, but ice is actually a modalistic analogy yeah, because when absolutely. the ice melts, it's no longer ice. You know, it's water, and when water evaporates, it's no longer. It's a successive modalistic analogy. I always say use the biblical data. There's one God. There's three persons who presented as God, and these three persons who are called Yahweh, presented as Creator, um, are distinct. Are grammatically distinct from each other. This is Mm -hmm. the data. This is why we use the Trinity. For anyone that says the Trinity doesn't matter in salvation, um, for anyone who says you know we can just you know love each other and you know, praise God. No, that's not how the early church saw it. In fact, the Council of Nicaea, even on the Nicene Creed, it affirms that the church was always Trinitarian when they say we believe in one God, uh, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, one Lord, right? Uh, Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father and the Holy Spirit, even the the earlier ones, uh, the earliest edition, both and the later edition of Nicene Creed, both affirm the concept, it pre-assumes this is what the church believed. And if you don't believe this, they would radically be in agreement that this is anathema. If you don't believe how God revealed himself, um, Jesus, mm-hmm. interestingly, for those who say, well, um, the, the Trinity really doesn't matter in salvation. Here's the problem. First of all, if you really believe Jesus is God, if you really believe that he's uh, the son of God, God in the flesh, 
in what sense is his relationship with the father biblical? How do you believe their relationship? Mm. Is he a different God, you know, a separate God that of course would be Mormonism. Is he the same person? Of course, that would be oneness. Um, is he a God? No, that would be, that would deny how the scripture presents him. In other words, there's no other biblical option. So if you say um, the Trinity is not self, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you believe. Well, you're talking about the nature of God. Maybe you don't like the word Trinity. I can say, does the nature of God matter? He revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct persons. This mm. is how God revealed himself. So yeah, Jesus says those who worship God must worship the Father, must worship him in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. If you, if you worship the Father, not acknowledging, not believing that the Son is differentiated from the Father, mm -hmm. if you don't believe the concept of God as triune, you're not worshiping in spirit and truth. Yes, it's a salvation issue. Absolutely. That's how the early church saw it, and that's how historically Christians saw it. I'm glad you done. Oh, sorry. No, go um, ahead, Andrew. My, I'm, final, I'm, yeah, my yeah. final thought, and I promise I'm done. First John 2, go. 23, I believe. Um, he who denies the son denies the father also. So if your son is not the biblical son, if he's not the preexistent eternal second person of the Trinity who was always with the father, the son you have um, doesn't exist. So he can't save you. But John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the father except by me. If the son you have is not the one uh, presented in the biblical witness, you have no path to the father and you, you can't have the father. Mm -hmm. That's, so, like, me, that's yeah. like me asking you, well, do, do we really have to believe in one God? I mean, come on. You know, as long as I believe in Jesus, yeah, you exactly. know, maybe there's many gods. You know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. I'm really glad you guys brought that up because I'm watching a side chat in the uh, in the comments. And I want to address it real quick. I was going to save it for later, but I want to address it since you both are here. Um, and I'll just kind of run through them real quick and um, and then get your guys' thoughts on it. Uh, Idol Killer, which I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, um, idol killer, but this is Warren McGrew. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him or not. Um, but he says, Ed just acknowledged that there were modalists at Nicaea, then dismissed them as heretics when the other proto Unitarians there did not both meant to condemn Arius. And then he goes on to say, um, I'm sorry, wrong one. I'm Trinitarian, but the ease with which other Trinitarians seek to damn modalists is extremely problematic. Carmen responds, problematic? How so? And then Warren comes back to say they make something salvific, which scripture and the early church does not. They're elevating a particular view of the Trinity at that. And then the last thing, the uh, early church fathers spoke of how most of the laity were modalists. Does that mean most of the laity were unsaved? Oh, wait, one more. If the Trinity is salvific, then which specific model of the Trinity, monarchy, ontological, economical, etc. And so we can all get a grasp of where Warren's going here. But I'm just wondering how you guys would respond to that. We'll start with uh, Andrew and then we'll uh, and then Dr. Dacor. Well, before we have the creeds and confessions, because, yes, the term Trinity is coined in AD 160 uh, by Theophilus of Alexandria, uh, Tertullian. Um, they're using it long before Nicaea. But the thing is, even if we don't have it written down that we're Trinitarian and we're defining these things as we are in the 21st century, um, people in the New Testament, as the word that was written is is being lived out, 
they were experientially Trinitarian, even as far as back to the Old Testament. There was the unseen Yahweh that spoke and sent the angel in the spirit. There was the angel of Yahweh, the capital A angel who could only say and do things um, that God could say and do. And then there was the spirit of Yahweh. So uh, I think you're giving too much away to modalists. Uh, Modalism is not a, a version of the Trinity. It's not an explanation of the Trinity. It's an outright denial of the trinity and when modalists or most one is Pentecostal today who are simultaneous modalists when they are presented the biblical witness of who jesus is they reject it and their their rejection comes from a heart and a spirit of antichrist so yes we have every reason to damn modalism and anathematize modalists as heretics not on the basis of comprehension because let's say let's even grant if the general run of Christians were modalists, um, like I believe Tertullian wrote. And that means that the, the large body were primarily oneness. Well, you're talking about, in most societies, very uneducated people, not confessionally, creedally prolific people that are saying, yes, we reject the Trinity for the sake of modalism. But no, it is an absolute departure from the biblical witness of truth. Um, I think it's Hippolytus or Tertullian one that wrote they put to flight the paraclete, that's the Holy Spirit, and they crucified the Father on the cross. Those are both incredibly damnable things that puts you outside of Orthodox um, doctrine and separates you from the Church of Christ. So no, we're not, we're, we're not just having problems with modalism because they don't agree with us. And then to the mode of the Trinity, the model of the Trinity, I personally am monarchical. Uh, in my view of the Trinity, that's something I did want to touch on later. But even amongst the different models of one God and three persons, whether that's economic or social or monarchical, the the baseline is understanding that this one God has revealed himself as three different persons. Right. Dr. Dalcor. Yeah, if I can just mention, the, I, I, know, I know one a lot of oneness people copy from each other. You know, they go online, they try to find these... Uh, statements and they all copy and paste without doing research I, I would just you know challenge anyone when they look at church history and patristics they must read patristics objectively because for instance the the quote from tertullian tertullian lived in an area where there was oneness people in, in north africa he wasn't out that we didn't he didn't have an internet he didn't have fax machines he didn't have telephones within his little region geography um, yeah, he, that's the statement that he said in light of his geography. But to say the entirety of the ecclesiastical body were oneness, that would go against every church patristic scholar. I just read, you know, no one likes to accept the patristics who are against their position. Like I read um, J.N.D. Kelly about this was the apostolic tradition, a plurality of divine persons. Well, let's just push that aside because... Tertullian in his Carthage, you know, in his area, there was some oneness and he made that statement. So we're going to hold to his statement. We're going to ignore the panoply of patristic documents around the, 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 the geography of Christians um, where we have a vast amount of Trinitarian literature. What do we do with the vast amount of Trinitarian literature? You know how many church fathers commentate, uh, gave commentary on Genesis 126? refers to um, numeric, the son and father were numerically distinct from each other based on Genesis 126, as Justin Martyr says, 150. 
or Clement of Alexandria. I mean, we go on and on with with uh, statements, early statements um, of not just one church father, but the panoply um, university, uh, universal church father world. For instance, Clement of Alexandria, one of my favorites, 190 AD. This was this was a man who had there was a huge Christian body in Alexandria. It wasn't a small, you know, small area. He says, I understand nothing except the Holy Trinity is to be uh, meant for the third is the Holy Spirit and the son is the second by whom all things were made according to the will of the father. So when we look at patristics, <clears throat> it's very important for people to stay objective and not focused because someone made a statement over here. Look, Irenaeus said or Athanasius, when, they're, when they were talking about the, the view, the, um, uh, theosis of man becoming God, um, every Mormon this side of eternity will take that. It's not that they did make these statements. Here it mm -hmm. is. What did they mean by those statements? Mm -hmm. Many people do not know how to read church history. They just don't know how to read it because they read it in, they don't consider geography. They don't consider um, limitations of language. They don't consider any of that. All they do is they they they're they're seed pickers, uh, spermologos, as they accuse Paul of being, where they pick here, they pick there. They don't look at the church patristic, the world of patristics objectively, and they cut and paste and, and select yeah. a few. I would just challenge anyone to read the entirety of patristics and come out with some other view other than the triune concept of God. Yeah, and we're going to be getting into some scripture, reading that oneness presupposition back into the text out loud, you know, audibly, just so you can hear the inconsistency of it. If you tried to do that with the patristic fathers, right, it, it's going to make absolutely no sense. You will have to come out Trinitarian. But to address uh, Warren's comment, I just want to kind of touch on something you really both have said. It's not like some of these. Now, Granted, I'm not going to paint everybody with a broad brush and say everybody that's in the oneness Pentecostal movement is not saved. Absolutely not. But what I will say is this. If there is truth proclaimed in Scripture, just like justification by faith alone, if there is that truth and someone is confused about it, that's one thing. We can take time to sit down and explain these concepts with somebody and pray to God that the Holy Spirit convicts them, convicts their heart of this truth, and they repent. They change their mind, and they realize, okay, justification is really by faith. Whenever you have someone that flat out denies and then proceeds to fight back after being told the truth, after being shown these different things within Scripture, you have to ask yourself, why are they fighting so hard? What is it about this truth that just seems so clear to me, so clear to, and, and I don't matter for nothing, right? I'm just Tyler Fowler. Don't take me, look what I'm saying up. But the whole council of church history, the apostles, and even back into the Old Testament, we see hints of the Trinity, right? Proverbs 30, who is Yahweh and who is his son? I mean, you know, not to say that that is one of the, you know, primary text for the doctrine of the Trinity. The point that I'm trying to make is, is that all in all, whenever you take the, the whole counsel of God, right, and then you look at church history to still fight back against Trinitarianism, there's a problem, and I want to get to the root of that problem. Fair enough. And so with that being said, I would like to show a clip of uh, Steve Ritchie, the uh, gentleman that Dr. Dalcord debated, and and just to take them at their own words, because again, the thing Andrew and I said at the very beginning 
uh, before we even knew Dr. Delcourt was going to join us, was that we do not want to misrep misrepresent one's Pentecostals. We don't want to misrep misrepresent this position at all. So I want to play this clip and just to, like we all say in Indiana, hear it from the horse's mouth. The main distinction or difference between oneness theology and uh, Trinitarian theology, first of all, is we do not believe that the Son of God is a timeless God the Son. I think we can agree with that. We believe that the Son was made, but we do not believe the Son was made before the virgin conception. We believe the Son was preconceived, was foreordained, and foreknown in the mind and plan of God, which is his divine expressed divine utterance, his logos. And when the word of God was made flesh, John 1, 14, that's when the son of God lived in the virgin daughter of a man. Jesus is called son of God, son of man, because of the virgin conception. He's not uh, a son of man because he was a son of man before the virgin conception, because son of man means son of mankind, because Mary is the virgin daughter of a human being, a man. We believe the son of man, or I'm sorry, we believe the son was made. Guys, what are your thoughts on that? The son is a term of, again, human nature. So mm -hmm. when God's a father, he's just a father to his creation. I think Steve Ritchie, even in his debate with you, Dr. Dalcor, he quoted Malachi 3.6. Have we not but one God? Or are you not our father? I'm butchering that. I'm not quoting that verbatim. Um, but father to them is just a relational title in lieu of his creation and his people. So for Jesus to be the son, it just means the one God, the, the father entered into humanity, entered into creation and took on flesh in the incarnation. And that's how he can be called the son. So here's a, here's a, a paradoxical statement that I think should destroy oneness altogether. Oneness proponents would say something to the effect of God is the son, but the son is not God. Please help me. I believed it. I championed it for um, cognitively for 20 years, at least from my, my young uh, years, eight, nine years old up until 25, 26. I championed that. But now looking back at it in lieu of the biblical witness and context, please help me understand how you can know the context of scripture and still hold to that. Mm -hmm. My answer is that you can't. Dr. Dacor. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I remember that, that debate when he made that statement, you know, he, he passed away not too long ago, by the way. Steve. I did Last not know year. that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And um, anyways, um, I mean, he was a friendly uh, gentleman when we, when I went there. Um, no sense of humor, though. I remember he was wearing this blue suit. I said, what are you going to, are you going to sing or debate? You know, I was just kidding. He just looked at me strange. <laughs> Anyways, what, and I, I know we talked about this before. Um, they deny the son existed as a person. So the weakest part of oneness theology that I found is to show passages where the son, the son preexisted. In fact, most of the passages in the New Testament, when it taught, when it talks about the preexistence, it uses the term son. I think Jude 1, um, 1, 5 is an exception. It says Jesus delivered the people out of Egypt. Mm. Um, and there's a variant, my favorite variant in all the world. It, it, it comes in the earliest manuscript of Jude, right, of uh, um, P72. And it mm. reads, uh, 
Christos or Theos Christos delivered his people out of Egypt, the God Christ. You know, it's beautiful. Oh, wow. wow. That's yeah, it's, it's not viable, but it's the earliest manuscript we have of Jude. It's just interesting. But anyways, um, to show, I think the weakest part of what this doctrine is to show places where the sun existed. One of the ones I use, and um, I know we'll get into some of the other passages, is the Carmen Christi, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Because it's very interesting. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but when it says he existed um, in the in the form or nature of God, the term existed. I remember what Richie did, or he wrote a video against me on this exegesis I did of Philippians 2, 6 uh, through 11. When it says um, uh, has and morphe theo uh, theo huparkon, the, the participle huparkon, it's a participle, right? Present active participle who subsisting, notice the ing, it's there for a reason in English translations because it's a present active participle denoting an ongoing, like a moving picture. Well, what Richie does, he denied my exegesis saying he always subsisted, just even in English, he always subsisted in the nature of God by saying the lexical meaning of huparko, notice I pronounce it differently, means to come to be. Well, yes, if that was the just the lexical meaning. This is a participle, Mr. Ritchie, which you don't know languages. This is a present active participle, similar to an ing verb, who always existing in the nature of God. Whatever seven means and herpagnos means, it must be interpreted in light of verse six in the participle. But here's here's the thing here. Who always exists in, in, the, in the morphe of God, he did not uh, regard equality a thing to be grasped after or taken advantage of. But then it says he emptied himself, right? Taking the very uh, nature of a bondservant, uh, ergomenos, having been made in human likeness, having been found in the appearance of a man. Here's the thing. These verbs here were predate the incarnation. He did these things before the incarnation. In verse 6, when it says he did not regard hegesita, equality with God, a thing to be grasped, when did he regard something? The, the word hegesita, which means consider or regard, only persons consider or regard something. Concepts can't. Animal, right. A dog can't consider in his mind because this word here, regard or consider, is only used of persons. But look at the timing here. He did not regard, consider something. He did this before verse 7, before the uh, the Alton he emptied himself. He considers, he thought about something, he considers something, he reckoned something in his mind before he emptied himself. A concept cannot do that. Only persons uh, do the action of this verb. So right from the start, it shows that the son was a person. He did something, the referential identity. I will say, and I, I'm sure you're familiar with this, Andrew, some people want us Pentecostal and I, uh, Costalism, I think Bernard, they see the referential identity here as the father who existed in the form of God. Whereas others, like I believe Stephen Ritchie and, and I think Roger Perkins and others. I was just about to say Roger Perkins because mm -hmm. that came up in the cross-exam with his debate against James White. Roger Perkins thinks that it happened post-incarnation and James Preston says, well, when did the Impian take place? Yeah, exactly. And Roger Perkin goes, well, well, I don't know what point it, it, in, his, in his human life that was. You expect me to know? And tried to 
that in his ministry, it happens sometime in his ministry you know um ray sometimes one as pentecostals will appeal to robert raymond who sees this as with some other scholars as a reference to the crucifixion on the cross right to the cross how he emptied himself um but the question there is why does he see it that way he was not a oneness he was a trinitarian who believed jesus christ was distinct unipersonal and pre-existent it so it doesn't that doesn't help their argument it's like a muslim quote, quoting a Bert Ehrman, you know, Bart Ehrman, it doesn't help their argument at all. But the fact is, there's many places where the son is active before the incarnation, where he's doing things. And um, I think, I think one of the best examples of this is with the angel of the Lord, yeah, the yes. son of man, when they're Amen. actually, it's not just in the son's mentioned, not just in prophecy, the person of the son, not just in prophecy, but he's actually doing something. Um, with the angel of the Lord, he's actually interacting with people. He's actually, um, uh, people were devoted to him. They followed him. He gave commandments and he referred to himself as Yahweh. The yeah. angel of the Lord, who wasn't the father, referred to himself as Yahweh. The recipients of the angel of the Lord referred to him as the God who sees all in Hagar's sense or or Abraham, you know, we, we're familiar with uh, Genesis 18 through 19, the three visitors, and then in chapter 19, all of a sudden we read of two angels because one of those angels was the angel of the Lord who said in verse 24, and I, I would say for those who are um, gun shy in looking at patristics objectively, look at how a vast number of patristics, of church fathers see Genesis 19, early church fathers, pre-Nicene, who see Genesis 1924, where we mm -hmm. read Yahweh reign brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh out, mean the Hebrew preposition from Yahweh out from heaven. That's right. David Bernard in his book, um, The Oneness of God, I think he devotes, I think almost two pages trying to explain what that really means. I don't have to do that. I can just read the verse. Yahweh reign fire, brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh in heaven. So we see the son's activities in the Old Testament with the angel of the Lord. Um, and certainly the, the views of pre-Christian Jews were not the views of post-Christian unbelieving Jews. They acknowledge these two powers. They acknowledge the differentiation. Even in apocryphal literature like, um, like Enoch, um, not that we see that as, as you know, Theopanustas or God breathed out, particularly in chapters 46, through through 62 it it identifies the son of man as a divine person not just some venerated human person but a divine person a lot of it was based on daniel chapter 7 9 through 14. so the old testament's against oneness theology the old testament is against unitarianism because it presents a distinct divine person distinct from another yahweh or the father and that's what we call this monotheistic trinitarianism because that's what we find one being revealed in three persons to add to that um going back to jude 1 5 jesus who saved the people out of the land of egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe if we look at exodus 14 and exodus 23 uh, yahweh is sending the angel of his presence out before the people and he says mm -hmm. do whatever this angel commands for my name is in him so you see the pattern 
in the in the Old Testament, again, the Trinity is um, God, the father, the Yahweh that's unseen. If you were to even see him, you'd die immediately. Mm. He speaks from heaven. He sends the angel. He sends the spirit. Then you have that angel that has the power um, to destroy people for unbelief. And then you've got the spirit of Yahweh who's set amongst the midst of people and, and does many other things. And what oneness proponents actually appeal to is the fact that there's no mention of the trinity explicitly in the old testament that was actually my biggest hurdle to get over that was the final hurdle thankfully but watching sam shamoon's debate with stephen ritchie is the trinity in the old testament and just showing unanimously contextually that these three persons are all yahweh but they're distinct from one another and they're economically doing different things that's what held me captive and left me with no choice ultimately to embrace the doctrine of the Trinity. So very uh, glad you uh, paralleled Jesus with the angel of the Lord, because if Jesus is not the angel of the Lord, we've got four people in the Godhead and this angel mystery, like just conveniently disappears <laughs> after the incarnation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And he, look, the, the referential identity, the speaker to Moses was the angel of the Lord who said in verse six, I am the God of your father, Abraham, right. Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God of your father. Um, I'm the I am the one, you know, I, that, that's who the angel of the Lord was. And um, we don't have to finagle with these passages. We can allow it to read for itself. And all these we didn't we didn't mention. Uh, we didn't even go through all the plurals in the Old Testament, but all those plurals. And all those um, uh, statements of the angel of the Lord being distinct from the Father are only consistent with monotheism in the concept of Trinitarianism. It's not consistent with Mormonism or Hinduism, many gods, polytheism. It's not consistent with oneness. One is, uh, I think, one of the most devastating passages in the Old Testament is Genesis 19:24. And the ones who say, and I, I want to, I, I think we mentioned this. The ones who say. The Trinity is not important for salvation. Normally, they're the ones who don't have a coherent idea as to what the Trinity teaches. Mm, That's what you. I found. Yeah, thank they just don't so know much. what it teaches. You know, um, when it's almost as bad as a Muslim saying, well, you know, you guys believe in three gods. You know, they just don't know what it means. They don't. They've never studied it out themselves. Anyone who says the Trinity is not important or I don't believe it's salvific, they just don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. I would challenge them to give me a coherent idea or definition biblically of what the Trinity is. You know, you know I'm glad that you um, you brought that up, Doctor Dalcor, because Warren's still in the comments talking. But I don't I, I don't want to make this conversation about him at all. But I do want to ask: Is there a specific model of the Trinity, like he said that he holds the Eastern uh, Eastern monarchianism? Is there a specific model that one would have to affirm? in order to since it's salvific so to say or well actually let me just let me just post it real quick because i don't want to misrepresent um him hold on just a second yeah here it is he said if the doctrine is salvific then we need to know the truth so what model is true and salvific speak up and this will be the last question we take from from warren on this subject we might have to get a part two and have him on so we can talk about these topics you know and get them situated beforehand but uh but yeah i'd just like to know um your guys's thoughts on that because to me it seems like a leap I, I don't mean to interrupt it really seems like a leap to say 
you have to so there's a difference between affirming the trinity and then getting down into the specifics of how everything works because to me anyway and guys correct me if i'm wrong i'm, I'm the baby here this time andrew so so don't worry about that rather <laughs> i'm the baby on this one but but to me anyway it just seems like there there's speculation then going into these concepts at this point to exactly how things work things that scripture never even touches on so therefore it demands speculation in some sense but i'm just curious how how you guys would uh would take something like that well i would say first and you know keep in mind there's 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 sufficient knowledge of a doctrine and then there's exhaustive knowledge of a doctrine mm -hmm. um i can delineate the sufficiency of the trinity and then there's the um, exhaustive um, information of the Trinity that gets into more of the exegetical nuts and bolts. Um, first and foremost, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That's ontological. Mm -hmm. You cannot believe he's the father. Then it just explodes your, the ontology of God because you don't have God. If Jesus is the father, then the son did not exist. And again, the son says, you got to believe ontologically how I exist. Unless you believe that I am, you will perish in your sins. He's the great God and Savior, says Paul. He's the Lord of glory. So the apostles affirm the ontological nature of the triune concept by affirming Jesus Christ was truly God distinct from his father. By affirming that the Holy Spirit is the Yahweh in many Old Testament passages, and he's, the, he's unipersonal. He's distinct, right? So the apostles affirmed it. This is the God that they serve, and this is the God who is revealed himself in three persons and the person of the son said, unless you believe you will die in your sins. So yes, ontologically, that's like asking, well, do we have to believe there's only one God? Do we really have to believe, can we believe that he was created out of matter? Right. Like the Mormons believe, can we, you know, so what, as long as we love Jesus? No, that's not how the Bible presents it. Um, so ontologically, yes, because without the nature of God, you don't have God. Mm -hmm. All, you know, all bets are off. You can, you can create any God you want. That's not how the biblical authors saw it. If you believe Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, mm -hmm. the only biblical option is a triune concept. The father sent the son, the son became incarnate. Um, in terms of the economic Trinity, that has to do with the functions of each person, particularly in salvation. Um, a lot of Christians don't really understand and and you might find this, Andrew, in a lot of Christian churches, they tend to be Jesus only, not ontologically, not like a oneness, but they'll attribute every aspect of salvation to Christ. Um, I mean, in one sense, you know, they're, they're looking at Christ alone, but in another sense, sure. it, you know, we find the father is the one who justifies, elects, predestines. It's mm -hmm. the son who died on the cross, right? It's the father who, who was propitiated. It's the son who propitiates. Uh, the Holy Spirit re, uh, uh, regenerates. So we see the functions, but um, a lot of Christians, you know, they don't, they don't really understand and dealing with sufficient knowledge. You have to believe there's one God that's in the 10 commandments. You got to believe there's only one God. And you also have to believe that Jesus Christ is God. Even with those two aspects, a Trinitarian concept is the only biblical option. So if you're, if you're a Christian and you're, all you know is that, there, that Jesus Christ is God. Um, you don't know how to explain the Trinity, but you don't reject it. There, look, there is a difference. Last point, there is a difference 
between a, a Christian who has not been adequately taught. They might go to a non-teaching churches, which is probably the vast majority of teaching of churches these days, where they never get into the Trinity because the pastor just sees it as a mystery. He doesn't want to take the time to deal really with, to teach the most important thing in the Bible because it's the marrow, it's the marrow of, of the gospel. Right. Um, there's a difference between that Christian who believes in Christ, believes that Christ saved, saved them, saved him or her. They, they believe that God the Father sent the Son. They believe Jesus is God. However, they don't know how to explain it really well. Yeah. You know, because they haven't been taught. There's a difference between that person who still embraces it and a oneness Pentecostal who rejects it. Or right. there's a difference between a Christian who believes we're justified by faith, but you had to have faith. You know, they, they don't understand the nature of justification, but they believe they're saved through faith alone. Um, but they explain it horribly sometimes. And they believe that okay. it wasn't by works. There's a difference between that person and someone who believes you must do meritorious works. You must be water baptized. That's right. You must, you must embrace a doctrine of the Judaizers in order mm -hmm. to be saved. You know, I reject faith alone because the, the phrase besides James, it's not in the Bible in a positive sense and all these other, but the fact of the matter, Paul says right. in Romans 4, 6, God credits or imputes legizomai, righteousness, charis ergon apart from works. So your arguments with Paul, but that's different, right? Someone who doesn't know how to explain it, but says I'm saved through faith alone, not by works. And the guy or girl who says, no, I reject it. We're saved by water baptism. We're yeah. saved by by lusting after Mary, by praying to saints, by, you know, it just goes on and on. Right, right. There's a, a and, and to just condense like what you said perfectly, there's a difference between being confused by something and outright attacking it. Andrew? To that point, James White even made a great statement is if we were to give the church by and large a test on the Trinity, we'd probably have upwards of a 75% fail rate because yeah. of the, the understanding is not there due to lack of catechism, which actually brings me to the point um, of why we need to ramp up apologetics and start teaching people again, because the sole reason that people would convert to oneness Pentecostalism or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses is because they have questions. The heretic can answer those questions, and the pastor mm -hmm. never took time to it. Uh, on the same token, though, yes, it is, like I said earlier, it's comprehension versus denial. So if you would have came to someone, the, the gospel is not justification by faith alone and belief in the finished work of Christ and intellectual assent to the doctrine of the Trinity, mm -hmm. right? It's not a requirement in order to be saved. But I'll say this, while there are people, sheep that belong to Christ, the good shepherd, in these heretical movements, um, they're not saved because of the teaching of the false gospel that comes out of those movements. And I would even posit that it's only a matter of time before the good shepherd comes and gets them out because right. they belong to him. That's right. But we need to be able to grant grace on the base of it's not all about comprehension to understand that, yes, there probably are people who've never given this a second thought that in spite of the movement or the false church that they're in, they do belong to Christ. That's right. And, and I, I was going to say, I, I, yeah. I do see a difference between apprehension and comprehension. Um, yeah. Comprehension. I don't think you can actually in, at least in totality comprehend, for instance, how Jesus managed to be God and man at the same time, how he managed right. that. Right. But, but we can apprehend the basic truth set forth in, set forth in scripture because of the Holy spirit, 
enlightens his his people right enlightens the ones whom jesus died for enlightens the elect enlightens christians so even though we can't totally comprehend a lot of the doctrines the biblical data is clear we can apprehend that we're saved by faith alone we can apprehend that there's one god but there's three persons called god called yahweh referred to as creator and we can apprehend that those three persons are distinct without knowing languages that's the beautifulness you know the beauty of the bible that's right in any recognized trans i say i always say recognized because you got some bizarre like joseph smith's translations the new world translation very interesting ones i don't know if you've ever seen the passion i mean that that's almost demonic it's horrible but any recognized translations communicates the at least in a apprehensive way to apprehend the basic truths one god revealed in three persons in the you know we talked about the um i i saw we, someone wanted to i don't i don't know tyler who who wanted to talk about the reformation but one mm-hmm. point they we know the sole right the five of them um but there was there was other concepts that came out of the reformation one of them was the principle of perspicuity and they would teach that perspicuity meaning understandability they would teach that all the basic truths are delineated in the in the bible in such a way that any literate Christian can understand. Yep. Right on. All right, gentlemen. So let's go ahead. And Andrew, I know you had some text that you wanted to read um, with the oneness presupposition, um, like out loud uh, ver- or yeah, audible, audibly. Um, it, go ahead. And uh, what's the first text that you want to go to? Um, I do want to go back to John 1, uh, 14 and 18. So uh, yeah. the question that you can stump on this Pentecostals on, um, remember, uh, Dr. Delcor, Steve Ritchie actually had to change the topic of the debate because he affirmed Jesus did preexist eternally as the one God. So the question you can ask is, how did Jesus eternally preexist as the father or as the word? And most oneness, when they're cornered with this question, are going to answer both to try to be consistent and to try to not put their foot in their mouth. But they do ignoring the context. So here's how I'd want to read um, John 1. Uh, and we're going to replace word with uh, Jesus. We're going to replace the words word and son with uh, Jesus. And we're actually also... For a cherry on top, we're going to replace the word God with Jesus. Okay. Now, Andrew, before you start, can you explain why exactly you're doing that? So to really flesh out and put oneness to its paces of the context, can it survive in the context of the passage? I think the unanimous answer is no. And if if oneness proponents would stop reading the scripture in a way of, I've got this, this bucket list of individual cherry-picked verses put together— and I would put these verses back in their context, I would see that oneness makes no sense with the meanings that I'm eisegeting onto the text. So with that, I'm going to read you John 1.1 as a consistent oneness Pentecostal. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with Jesus, and Jesus was Jesus. Skip down to verse 14 just for the sake of time. And Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Jesus from Jesus, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. Sorry. No one has ever seen Jesus. The only Jesus who is at Jesus's side, he has made him known. 
So for Jesus to be the one name of the unipersonal deity and father and, and God and word are just titles to him. If you put Jesus only or Jesus is the name for all of these things, Jesus is with himself. Jesus is beside himself. Jesus can't be seen. Jesus can be seen. <laughs> I mean, Jesus begets himself. It just makes no sense at all when you put it back in its proper context. If Jesus is everything, we have a really big problem just based on the first 18 verses of John 1. Yeah. So that's one example. Um, you brought up a really good one. I think it actually was John 17, uh, 1 through 5. So mm -hmm. in this particular reference, we're going to... We're going to replace the word son with human nature, and we're going to replace the word father with divinity or divine nature. When Jesus had spoken these words, this is verse one, he had lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, divine nature, the hour has come. Glorify your human nature so that the human nature may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. So right then, we have a creature, a, a human nature, having the ability to give eternal life. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth. So in context, the human nature is glorifying the divine nature. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now divine nature, glorify your human nature in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Do we Very... understand the consequences of these presuppositions? Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Dalcor, Tyler, do you want to add anything? No, no those, are, those are those are those are um, great points. I think um, I think it was Robinson who said, no, actually it was Luther um, who said that he was talking about John one one, refuting both Arianism and uh, Sabellianism. Because it's just so packed with with theological content, just in that one passage, from the very beginning, it rules out any idea that the word was not existing, or the word came to be by the imperfect tense. In the beginning, the word was already there, and he was already there. Um, but the prepositional phrase, I, I remember how how Richie, no matter how many times I explained to him. Um, what I was trying to say, he still kept reverting back to the same thing. It, it had to do with John 1, 1b, where it says uh, the phrase prostantheon, with the God. And I mentioned it's used 20 times in the Greek New Testament. And every single time, every single time, pros, the preposition translated with, um, it's always between persons or persons and God. Every single time, except three times where the neuter article is used, ta, which obviously means the things, right? Uh, ta, prostantheon, uh, Romans uh, 15, 17, Hebrews 2, 17, and also Hebrews 5, 1. Okay, it's not the same syntax as John 1 and the other places. So in, the, in other words, 17 times, every time this phrase is used, it's always a differentiation between God and persons, not dogs, not cats, not concepts, yeah. only person every single time and just the fact of the nature of the the preposition and we know that there is there's several different prepositions in greek that could mean with or association uh, parason uh, n uh, meta 
But John used a preposition that really does frequently denote intimate fellowship. Similar to John 1.18 with the term kolpas, bosom of the Father. He's always at the bosom of the Father. Um, like 2 Corinthians 5.8, but we are, we are of good courage. We prefer, he says, and prefer to be absent from the body and present uh, um, or be at home, prostan uh, kurion, with the Lord. Uh, Romans 5.1, um, therefore, having been justified from faith, literally, we have peace with the God, the same, the same um, phrase here. Anyways, in John 1.1b, it denotes only this phrase, this prepositional phrase, with the God, every time in the New Testament, except those three times, it denotes person or persons distinct from God the Father. 20 times it's used. And um, I think it, it's a good point. I've heard nothing but blather from one Pentecostal to try to deal with this. Richie said, he kept reverting to, you know, the Hebrews passage, the things pertaining to God. I, and I kept telling him, well, that's the, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the syntax of John 1.1b. Um, but anyways, I think that's a, a, a great argument that the word was with, and it only, that phrase only applies to persons with God or person with God. Every time. Right, right. And that, uh, and in that debate, uh, the cross exam, well, at least the second part of it, he preached so much that you couldn't get another question. I don't know if that was the, that was the format. Like you took 30 seconds to, you know, ask a question and they had a full two minutes to kind of respond to that question but it was really interesting to hear him engage with that because you're absolutely right he kept referring to the ver the three verses that you said had nothing to do with what you were asking him, the question that you were actually asking him which leads me to a question about john 1 2 that i have here i have the greek in front of me it says hutas ain in arche proston theon there's that prepositional phrase again this proston theon and so to me anyway i have to ask dr decor hutas here if John is referring to the word and John actually thought that the word was a concept, not a person, would the Greek be neuter here? Or does the masculine pronoun actually show us that John actually believes that, no, this is a person face to face with, proston, face to face with God? Well, a couple things in Greek, first of all, even, yeah. even neuter pronouns um, can be applied um, they're applied to the father, like in John 6, 30, 37, okay. they're applied to, um, uh, in John 10, 29, Jesus says, my father who has given them to me, ha, that, that's a, that's a neuter. Okay. Um, and also in gosh, in John, which is a great passage that, that I want to go through later, John 6, 38, when Jesus says, uh, he doesn't, he, um, uh, he doesn't do the will of, of, of when he says the will of me in Greek, mm. the will of me. He says, I didn't come here to do the will of me. The term me is an accusative, neuter, possessive pronoun. It's a neuter, right? But that neuter is only applied to persons, right? It's only applied to persons. So context tells us, uh, you know, what, what the pronoun, the referential identity of the pronoun is. So that doesn't help because, you know, we see the, con again, the content is, is the word and personal attributes are applied to the word, he's life. You know, he became flesh. He's called the monogamous uh, or the mon monogamous, the one and only. That's only applied to persons. So um, to argue that way would just show a weakness in exegetical skill. Um, it, it, besides, it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a masculine pronoun here. So that's why most translations, he was in the beginning with God. It's a masculine pronoun. 
and it, it's in opposition with uh, John one, you know, who was with the God. Right. Right. Andrew. There's one more that I want to, this is exhaustive, but it mentions the person of the Holy spirit because um, going back to their false gospel in making Jesus, the name of father, son, Holy spirit, there's a verse John 14, 26, that I want to get to, but I want to start at verse 15 and I want to read more with that um, father son distinction of human nature, divine nature. And I'll try to be very quick about this for the yeah. sake of time. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask my divine nature and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, which Jesus supposedly is whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live in that day. You will know that I am in my divine nature and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my divine nature and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if any love, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my divine nature will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever mm. does not love me does not love my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the divine natures who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, or for the sake of, of replacing, we can just say me in spirit form whom my divine nature will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So you see, now we involve the third person of the Trinity. Um, Jesus is referring to himself in spirit form as a he. He's going to say, he's going to bring to your remembrance all that the, the human nature has revealed to us. So again, I, I wanted to include all three persons of the Trinity in another reading of, of consistent oneness application to show that not only does this destroy exegesis, but mm -hmm. the work of the sending of the spirit, it destroys the entire gospel. The gospel mm -hmm. has to be Trinitarian and modalism. Uh, James White's done a great video on this, on his dividing line, but modalism, God being the same person in different modes, absolutely destroys the atonement and it destroys the gospel as a whole, which is another facet or another reason why an, a non-Trinitarian gospel cannot save. You know, that's really interesting. Verse 23 just jumped out to me, and I want to ask you guys this, um, and then uh, Dr. Dalcor, I'll get your thoughts on it. Um, verse 23 says, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my word, and my Father, or divine nature, will love him, and we will come to him and take up residence with him. So if we presuppose oneness, is that stating that the divine and the human nature will come and take up residence within a believer? Yeah, that's a that's a very Chris is a great verse because they they butchered John 14. But what they don't do is look at the entirety of the chapter and John's entire literature. Mm -hmm. What we have in verse 23 is two future plural indicative verbs, plural indicative verbs. My father, he says, if anyone loves me, they'll keep my word. And my father uh, will love him. So he's distinguishing himself. And Jesus is speaking. Jesus is speaking. 
the one mode's not speaking about another mode. This is Jesus speaking, and he refers to the Father as a distinct person. My Father will love him, and this is how it literally reads, to him, Elus Omatha, we will come, plural indicative. We will come, and our home, Poies Omatha, we will make. So we have two future plural indicatives. We will come to him, and our home we will make with him. It's amazing how one as Pentecostals cannot, it's not amazing. It's a spiritual issue here. It doesn't matter how smart they are, right. but it's incredible how you can show a, a simple dimple passage and they still, well, this is what it really means. This is how we speak. This language is used to, the, to define, to communicate. We will come and we will make. This also affirms that the son was eternal because certainly when he says we, Jesus is speaking about the father. That means the referential identity. The speaker is the son. When he says, we will come, we will make, we'll make our home with him. How is Jesus? How is the son? If he's not deity, how is he making his home with millions and millions of Christians? Millions. It's showing he's omnipresent. Only right. God is omnipresent. But the son, we, we have this beautiful affirmation of two future uh, plural indicatives the son does these things as the father does these things. Omnipresent, the son and the father. Have you heard the way David Bernard uh, tries to eisegete John 14, 23? So he takes the father as the full expression of the power of God. And then he takes that, the, the emptying of himself and the humility in the incarnation and uh, how Jesus had to be tempted in all points as we were and had to be lowered in humility. So he takes the father as the power and the son as the humility and the, the lowliness. And he, he butchers the entire passage into saying that those two persons are really two aspects or two attributes, two things that you're receiving when you receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, I, I've never heard of a more bizarre. And he's he's the the mouthpiece of that he's movement. It yeah, is right. bizarre. And, it, it's almost as bizarre as what he does to Genesis 1924, because if you look at all of John 14, no way in the world. Can you say it means this here, but not in verse six or not yeah. in verse 11? You know, yeah, that's kind of right. a crazy interpretation. Dr. Dalcor, I know um, you have a, a, a class to teach tonight um, and we've gone two hours, but you said that you wanted to get to John 638. Um, do you want to go ahead and do that? Yeah, um, actually, yeah, two verse, two things I wanted to get is one is John 638. And um, I think I. Richie doesn't know languages, and I think I, when I went into this passage, um, he didn't know how to respond um, because he does. And I didn't mean to, you know, use languages um, on this verse, but it's such a powerful verse. Um, first, I think I pointed out, you know, you look at John six. Uh, I believe eight times, eight or nine times, the son is said to uh, to have been sent from heaven. The son has been sent from heaven. So he was in heaven before. Anyone who says the son's not eternal, I'm not sure how they would actually grapple with these passages. But in, 30, in 638, Jesus says, and this is in this context of, of uh, the covenant of redemption. It's a beautiful chapter. But in 638, he says, I've come down. Now remember that, that phrase, I have come down. To simplify, it's a perfect tense, right? A past action with continuous result. I have come down, right? Um, Katababake, I have come down um, out of heaven 
not that I should do the will of me, not that's how it literally reads in order that purpose and result, not that I should do the will of me, but do the will of the one having sent me. And here's the point on this linguistically here, the action of, uh, having sent the last clause, but the one having sent me, mm-hmm. that's an areas participle. Grammatically, the areas comes before it's antecedent to the perfect, the perfect action. I have come down. That means before he came to earth, I have come down before the action of the perfect, he was sent. Mm-hmm. And it was at that time when he says, I'm not going to do my will, but do the will of the one having sent me. That means he was interacting. Um, in some sense, the wills were distinguished. He says, not my will, but the will of the one having sent me. Uh, again, the pronoun here, Amon, uh, the will of me, it's only used the person. But how is the son activating a will, talking about his own will, in distinction from the father before the incarnation? Before mm-hmm. the incarnation, he had a, a will distinct from the father, not my will, because that action, not my will, but your will was made before the perfect, before coming down to earth. So right. this is extraordinary. Richard could answer it at all, but this is extraordinarily um, important. Uh, John six, because again, eight times in the gospel of John in chapter six, the son is said to have uh, be out of heaven or from heaven or from out of heaven. Different three different phrases are used, mm-hmm. um, which comports with all the other like John 3.13, all the other passages that denote the son having been sent. Um, a lot of times, a what is Pentecostal or, or Unitarians, I should say, they will look at uh, the pre-existence differently. For instance, a lot of Unitarians have no problem that Jesus pre-existed. Mm-hmm. But Joe Witnesses have no problem that Jesus pre-existed. But the question is, is he eternal? Did he pre-exist for all eternity? And... First of all, the, the claims of the son, John 8, 24, 8, 58, those claims in and of themselves, in and of themselves, um, clearly imply eternality. Only Yahweh claimed to be the I am in Isaiah and Deuteronomy 32, 39. Um, only Yahweh claimed he's the ego, I me mean, in the Septuagint, only Yahweh. And it means the eternal one in Exodus 3, 14, I am the uh, I am the one always being ego, Amy Haon always being. Mm-hmm. So just the mere fact, the son claimed he's God shows eternality. We're talking about the son. I think Hebrews is probably the best presentation of the eternality of the son. How is it? I would ask all the people that say in the chat that say the son's not eternal answer this. How is it that the, that the father in verse 10, the father directly addresses the son as Lord. Even the word Lord is in direct address. It's in evocative, kodai. You, Lord, now the father speaking. He's not speaking about, um, Jesus is not mentioned. The son is mentioned. Mm-hmm. How is it that the father can directly address, again, the word Lord is in direct address in, in evocative there. How is it the father can address the son as the Lord he says, you, Lord, in the beginning, lay the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the work of your hand. The father cites the Septuagint of Psalm 102, one, the, the actual Septuagint is 101. But in Hebrew, we see the one, 102, 25 through 27. If you look in that Psalm 102, you'll find Yahweh's mention in Hebrew several times, translated mm. to So the whole chapter is dealing, particularly those passages, 
Yahweh as unchangeable creator of all things. How is it that the father can directly address? He's not talking about the son. He's mm -hmm. directing his statement. You, Kodiah, you Lord, in the beginning, you are the Yahweh of Psalm 102. How can he do this? If the son was not eternal, how does a father affirm the eternality of the son? Quoting Psalm 102 and applying it to the son. So he's saying in essence, right. you Yahweh in the beginning. You know, so I would ask anyone who says the son is not eternal, please answer that question. How is it that the father can not only command the angels to worship the son? I mean, that in and of itself, we don't worship creatures. We don't worship Mary. We don't venerate saints. We worship right. God only. Excellent. We don't worship That's human right. nature. That's right. Yeah. So how is the father? Now, the response I've gotten for one is Pentecostals mm -hmm. in verse six, because Arius imperative is used too. angels. You worship the son. That's strong. How is it the father can command the angels to worship a creature if the son is not eternal? That's right. That's right. I just want to read. I mean, because I got it right here in front of me. I just want to read Hebrews 1, 8 through 10. But of the son, let me say it again. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And a righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So God, your God, has anointed you over the companions or over your companions with the oil of rejoicing. And you founded the earth in the beginning, Lord, and the heavens are the work works of your hands. They will perish, but you continue and they will all grow old like a garment and like a robe, you will fold them up and like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will never run out a direct correlation to Yahweh. It's amazing. It really is. Yeah, Hebrews I'll give you another, three. I'll give you a brain buster on top of that. If we're speaking about the book of Hebrews, take yeah. the first three chapters of Hebrew. Every time the writer um, attributes the words of the old Testament in chapter one, he attributes the words of the old Testament to the father in chapter two, he attributes the words mentioned in the old Testament to the son. And in chapter three, dealing with the people in the wilderness who wouldn't enter into the rest of God, he attributes the words, he says, as the Holy Spirit says. So Hebrews 1, 2, 3, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Another verse that we yeah. didn't bring up, because Oneness used this a lot, and, and Dr. Dalcoy reminded me of it when you said it. Isaiah 9, 6, when the name of the Son given, when his name shall be called Everlasting Father, they think that's direct proof that Jesus is God the Father. And mm -hmm. so Abiyad, the Hebrew word for Everlasting Father, it just right. means that he's the father or possessor of everlastingness or eternity. It's just an at it's for, it's not calling him the person or designating him as the person of God the Father. It's right. saying that the Son given is from everlasting. He's the possessor of all eternity and self existence, not that he's a person in the Godhead. Well, just to add to that, Andrew, because the terms, according to one of the theologians, the terms father and son, this is New Testament language, right? This isn't Old Testament. So I don't know why they would think that the, or, or am I misunderstanding that? No, um, uh, Ab first Abiod, you know, they, they, they'll, they rely on the, on the English here because they have a precept that Jesus is the father. So right. they think the Old Testament writer there, Isaiah, was speaking of a New Testament concept that's more delineated of a father-son. Normally father, first of all, it's interesting because father's not, that wasn't a frequent title of, of God. I think it's only used in the Hebrew. 
it's only used um, term for father Ab, it's only used about 15 times and normally it denoted typically his parental pr providential character as to his children for example in uh, uh, Exodus 4 22 and 23 you know calls Israel my son my firstborn mm -hmm. let my son go right in Isaiah 63 um, you you are our father and and he speaks about um, our redeemer it doesn't mean the same it doesn't carry the same meaning as the new testament father son relationship when it talks about in the old testament it's normally denoting his his providential character as creator redeemer providing for them um and so on and so forth so we have malachi 210 you know yeah he's he's the possessor he's the founder he's the source he's the creator of all things um that's why we have that but um the word father in isaiah 6 uh the, the prefix precedes the word translated eternal. So we have Abiyad, which is a father of eternity would probably be our father eternal. Um, what really bears us out is the ancient Targum, the Aramaic paraphrase, where it says his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God. Listen to this. He existing forever mm -hmm. because they understood he possesses eternity. That's how the Jews understood this verse. Mm -hmm. um, he is existing forever forever also historically there's never been a commentator a jewish commentator non-christian a jewish commentator on isaiah 9 6 who would hold to a oneness view there there's never been a christian commentator again scholarship is on my side they're trinitarian christian scholarship you don't find scholars that are oneness you don't find a systematic theology they're all i'm not appealing to authority here i'm just stating some things um stating some facts here Here's one more set of facts I want to tell if there's any oneness listening. Over 200 times, I point this out in my, one of my books, over 200 times, Jesus is re explicitly referred to the Son, and never once was he called Father. And to, to try to use John 10.30 just shows an ignorance of the language and context there. He's never called Father. He's only called Son or a different title. And over 200 times in the Gospel, the father is referred to Jesus or, or someone else as clearly being distinct from Jesus 200 times, wow. 50 times. The father and Jesus, the son are presented explicitly distinct from each other over 50 times and almost 180 times. Jesus is in the gospels. Jesus is presented as referring to his father as the father, your father, uh, or my father distinct from himself. And at no time, again, does he refer, listen to this, no time does Jesus refer to my son, to somebody else. It, it, as if he was the father, he would say my son. We mm -hmm. don't find that. We just find differentiation. Same with the Holy Spirit. 40 times in just the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself as being sent by the Father, but he never says that he was, uh, that to himself, that as, as the father who sent the son, he never claims he's the father who sent the son. Right on, right yeah. on. Andrew, is there anything that you'd like to add? Uh, because there's, there's one more text that I want to go to before we get to audience. Uh, well, we've kind of touched on some audience Q and a, but uh, for our listeners, if you have questions for Dr. Dalcor, Andrew Elliott, or myself, uh, feel free to post them. We do have a couple, um, but I do want to get uh, to a text, but Andrew, if you've got, um, you got anything else you want to add? No, 
this is okay this is going great yeah I, I think this is going amazing and again thank you guys so much um for for dedicating your time and taking the time to do this but i want to bring up john 18 or i'm sorry john 8 um verses 17 and 18 because i think dr dalcor if i'm remembering right you brought this up in your debate um but andrew and i have talked about this off of air and i want to get your guys' thoughts on it so we see here in john 8 17 <clears throat> jesus is uh well, actually, let me start in, in uh, let me just start in 12. Then Jesus spoke out again. I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees objected. You testify about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Keep that in mind. 14. Jesus answered, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because I know where it came from. And where I am going, but you people do not know where I come from or where I am going. You people judge by outward appearances. I do not judge any uh, anyone. But if I judge, my evaluation is accurate because I am not alone when I judge, but I and the Father who sent me do so together. It is written, verse seventeen, in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I testify about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Gentlemen, what are your thoughts um, on that verse? What is Jesus saying, and what's the argument really Jesus is making here? And how would the Jews of the first century, the Pharisees specifically, have understood this text? Based on uh, Deuteronomy um, 17.8, this was a law that verified to the Jews, it validified, verified, a, a true testimony so not that his testimony alone was was um untrue but right. he's even showing that hey i'm not alone i have god the father which infuriated them i mean keep in mind you know within the eyes of a jew by saying that i testify and my father testified that's why they wanted to kill him but it's based on deuteronomy 17 6 and in fact um paul uses it too and jesus also uses it in, in matthew 18 talking about divine or um, church discipline where two or three are gathered. And I know people like to use that for, you know, efficacy and prayer, but if you knew what it meant, you wouldn't want to use that. But he, he uses the same argument uh, about uh, not bringing an accusation alone. So it was a, it was an important law to the, to the Jews. So Jesus applies it to him and the father um, in terms of the unity and also the distinction between them. I think I mentioned the debate. Look, if you go to court and if you were to say, well, my soul testifies on behalf of my brain, mm -hmm. they would, th if it was Jewish court in the first century, <laughs> or, they would throw you out as some crazy guy. Only another person can testify. No, I use this debate, um, this, this argument here in, um, when I was in Missouri debating this pa pastor in this small town, big church, small town. Mm -hmm. um, only persons can testify of each other. And so Jesus is affirming his truth by Jewish law, Deuteronomy 17, 6. Yeah. Andrew? It's that distinction of two persons, not a human person and a divine person. That narrative in 17, 18 is what leads us back to verse 24, except you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And he also kind of starts it off by saying, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. So really the flesh here is off the table based on Jesus's own words. 
he's not judging. He's not making a judgment as a simple man or created being. He as a divine right. person and God the Father who sent him as a divine person. That's two people that meet the qualifications of the testimony being true of Jesus. Right. Right on, guys. All right. We have got um, – actually, this is a really good question uh, from Truth Defenders. The Complete Sinner's Guide, John MacArthur changed his position on the eternal sonship of Christ. How heretical is the denial of the eternal sonship of Christ? And the guy, honestly, that well, I'll leave that up, but the guy that comes to my mind, I uh, have his books, and, and I really love the guy, uh, Walter Martin, um, recently, well, not recently, he's uh, he deceased. <laughs> Passed oh, away. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember whenever he did pass away. But, um, I mean, I would affirm Walter Martin as brother, right? What is, is the is denying? Because I want to I want to be clear here. Because oneness theologians they don't just deny the eternal sonship. It goes beyond that, right? And so I guess if I could rephrase the question maybe a little bit, or you guys can answer both: is what's the difference between the oneness position of denying the eternal sonship of Christ and Walter somebody Martin. like Walter Martin? or John MacArthur denying it. Right. You want to go first, doctor? Yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting on that issue. Yeah. John did change his, his, his uh, view. He wrote a good paper on it. Mm -hmm. um, also, Walter Martin always uh, held to a denial of the eternal sonship. What they mean, contradistinct, uh, contradistinction from a oneness Pentecostal or Jehovah's Witness. Mm -hmm. When they say the son is not, uh, we don't hold to the eternal sonship. They mean... We don't hold to the idea that he was there was a uh, title son before Bethlehem, that the title, the name, rather, he was the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity. But he was the eternal word who became in relationship, the son, not in person, but in relationship. So both views hold tenaciously to the doctrine of the Trinity, both views. In fact, I quoted uh, J.N.D. Kelly, patristic authority. He said this. He said in church history on the side of Walter Martin, he said, you know, there was different categories of fathers. Sometimes they're merged. The apostolic fathers, the apologists, the theologians, you know, they categorize them as they get as it gets later. He said the all, not some, he said all the apologists of the category of church fathers held to the idea that the son was not that the title he was titled at either the incarnation or the emissions of the father in creation. So they didn't hold to the eternal sonship. Actually, it came after origin, but they didn't hold to this, that the, the, the second person of the Trinity was called son. It all, it all has to do with the title son. Was he called son? Was there a son? We're not talking about the person. We're talking about the son. Most oneness Pentecostals assume all Christians believe the same thing. They all assume that we all title the person in the Godhead Jesus as son before Bethlehem. But there's many Christians, Walter Martin, um, all the apologists, uh, and there's others who will say, well, no, he became the son in terms of title sure. at the incarnation. Um, I believe Ignatius writes about that. There's some early church fathers too. I think Ignatius writes it was um, either incarnation or, or at creation that he became son. Right. So just to just to make sure I'm understanding correctly, there's a fundamental difference between Walter Martin or John MacArthur denying the eternal sonship versus one is Pentecostal or Jehovah's Witness, like you said. Truth. I think truth offenders had another question related to that when he said, what's the difference between um, 
a Jehovah Witness seen Jesus as Michael the Archangel and a Seventh Day Adventist seen Jesus yeah. as Michael the Well, there's a qualitative difference here because a Seventh Day Adventist, although they're, you know, kind of they have some very strange doctrines, but on that issue, they don't deny the Trinity. They don't deny the eternality of the Son, but they just identify the Son as Michael. Whereas Jehovah's Witness will say he's Michael created angel. Mm. And there's some church fathers who, you know, Calvin went back and forth and John Gill believed that Jesus was identified as Michael the Archangel, which has nothing to do with his person as God. Right. Andrew? Same with the Son. Right. Yeah. The question that we're asking is, was Jesus incarnationally or eternally the son? And um, Gospel Truth, I think, is the name of the YouTube page. There's actually a good debate between two Trinitarians on that, if you want to give that a look, Tyler. Okay. And it's in-house. I mean, it's it's doesn't have anything to do with the Trinity. Yeah, you're still we're still saved. We're still brothers in Christ. Right on. Right on. He goes, Carm, Chieso. Is John okay to listen to or no? <laughs> I would say. Um, I think his his more grievous sin is that he's a dispensationalist. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> did, did I agree with you too quick on yeah. that? Or <laughs> you know, I, I like John's stance against false teachers. He's yeah. bold. He should be pastors should be doing what he does in terms of their boldness and apologetics. I just disagree with his uh, dispensationalism and his his Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, and time and all that stuff. Right. Right. All right, guys. Well, um, if y'all have any more questions for Dr. Dalcor or Andrew or myself, please feel free to uh, post them in the comments below. Again, like, share. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the Complete Center's Guide YouTube channel. We also have TikTok. We collab with Andrew and Black Doctor 21, Jeremiah, a bunch of good, solid reform brothers and sisters over there. Um, gentlemen, if there's let's uh let's go ahead and start winding down we're about at the two hour and 30 minute mark so much for that hour and a half yeah. right guys but, uh, <laughs> right is there anything just kind of in closing um and we'll start with uh dr dalcor um is there anything in closing that you would just kind of like to reiterate or maybe something that you haven't said tonight that you would say to someone who holds to oneness uh theology we did have i don't know if he's still here or not or still here or not um jacob Jacob Seeler, um, he does hold to oneness Pentecostalism. Um, so like I said, I don't know if he's still a uh, listener or not. But yeah, Dr. Dalcor, if there's anything uh, else that you would like to say, what would that be? Yeah, I would say first, of course, you know, we all of us as Christians should pray for all non-believers. And I, I see oneness Pentecostalism is not constrict, uh, consistent with Christianity. And if they were to die holding to a modalistic Jesus. They're dying without the Christ of scripture. Um, the data of who God is in scripture is clearly delineated um, from plurals in the Old Testament, from the angel of the Lord, from Jesus's several significant unequivocal claims being uh, ontologically equal with God, yet distinct from himself. By the way, I want to mention one thing. On, mm -hmm. on the most significant passages where Jesus claims to be truly God, there he differentiates himself from the father like in mark 14 61 through 64 when he says yes i am the christ to the pre, the high priest's question i am the messiah i'm the christ and you'll see the son of man descending in the clouds sitting at the right hand of power he differentiates himself he differentiates himself in john 10 30. he differentiates himself in john chapter 8 
when he makes these three I am claims it, within the content, there's a differentiation between him and the father. So in, in John 5, 17 and 18, the fathers that work to this very day, I too am working, right? Because they believe only Yahweh can, can work at the Sabbath. Right. Jesus made a bold claim there, but he was making himself, he himself was making himself, says John, equal with God, uh, the father. So his significant claims, he differentiates, said, differentiates himself from the father. So he wants us to know that the father is a distinct person who sent him. He wants us to know this is a gospel issue. He said, he's the speaker in John 8, 24. He's the speaker who said, unless you believe that I am, I'm the son, I'm the person that's not the father. Unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. He gives a baptismal formula where he differentiates the person under the one name. Mm -hmm. All through scripture in every gospel, uh, particularly both explicitly and implicitly, Jesus taught the express concept of the triune nature of God, just as the Old Testament believers did, just as all the apostles did. Why in the world would we have so many passages that differentiate uh, the Father and Son, Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, but yet Paul puts them in the same plane of equality, like in his great Trinitarian benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, distinct person, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul's not, he, Paul doesn't put a creature in his benediction. That, that's, that's us right. from God, right? And this is the Jesus, this is the resurrected Savior, who is the Yahweh of Joel 2.32, distinct from the Father. This is the angel of the Lord. And this is the one, says Paul, that we call upon, whoever calls upon this Jesus will be saved. A modalistic Jesus can't save. A oneness Jesus is is rejected in Scripture, and it 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 behooves all of us as Christians to make sure we have this information to share our faith with oneness Pentecostals. Make sure we understand the gospel. The gospel is this uh, God the Father sending God the Son who became incarnate, who considered things, who who had a will, who is a distinct person. This is the Jesus of the gospel. So we got to be clear. We have to have a definitive gospel. And I would admonish, I don't know if there's any pastors listening, but teach your church. Don't hide these important truths of the gospel. Teach your church. Don't keep them biblically illiterate like so many churches do. You got to do your job or you get you should get fired if you don't not you're doing your job. Honor God and teach the triunity of God. And Christians, honor God by presenting a definitive, complete gospel. Where Paul says the incarnation is part of the gospel in 2 Timothy 2, 2 8. We've got to preach this. We gotta be definitive in our proclamation. Amen. I I love the way you worded that. And and the three primary things that CSG tries to accomplish. One, share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. Two, discern biblical truth. And three, make disciples of all nations. And Andrew, I know you wanted to end with a gospel presentation, brother. So go ahead. Yes, and I would reiterate everything Dr. Delcor has already said. Um, the Jesus in oneness cannot save. That was actually an earth-shattering realization I had to come to through all of this. Um, I don't like to use this word because it's been so corrupted, but my phase of deconstructing out of oneness and embracing the Trinity, realizing that I had, only, I had only looked to my obedience of their distorted view of Acts 2.38 as my salvation. And I looked at how I thought I was right about the word, and that was my righteousness. That was my self-righteousness. 
So if you're on the oneness side, I would make an appeal to you. If God can do it for me, I know he can draw anyone he wants to himself. I would just urge you to be reconciled to God, to put your faith, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the second person of the Trinity and has always existed alongside the Father and the Spirit. He alone uh, can save. And if you really believe Acts 4.12, there's salvation under no other name other than the name of Jesus then you'll have to understand that this Jesus spoke of himself distinctly from the Father and the Spirit, but made claims that only God could make and did only things that God can do, one of which was raised from the grave and uh, purchase, make atonement for our sins. So that's the gospel in a nutshell. We're all sinners. We've been separated in in perfect communion from a holy God due to our fall. We're in a depraved nature. We can't come to God in and of ourselves, but Christ, the perfect God man made atonement for his people and those who put their faith in him will not perish. They'll have peace with God. They'll make their way back to the father through the son by the regenerating power of the Holy spirit. And those will have everlasting life in perfect eternal harmony and communion with the triune God. Amen. Amen, brother. And if I could just leave everyone, I want to thank everyone for tuning into this episode of CHG. I want to thank Dr. Edward Dalcor and Andrew Elliott for coming on and explaining oneness. I have a better understanding of this, of this um, theology now than I did before I came on or before we started this episode. And so I want to thank both of you gentlemen from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for that. I would like to end um, this conversation, though, with two passages. The first one is Romans 3.20. Um, well, I had it. 3.20, Now we know whatever the law says, it says of those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no one is declared righteous before him by the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, which is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed, namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they are justified freely, that were justified, declared righteous, that they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of faith in Christ. Where then is boasting? It is excluded by what principle? Of works? No, but by the principle of faith. For we consider that a person is declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. And the last one I want to leave you all with, 1 Corinthians 15, now one, or 15, 1. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preach to you, that you receive and on which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, 
then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 of his brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that everyone believing in him will not perish, but have everlasting, have everlasting life. Repent. Change your mind about Jesus, about the person that you think he is, and realize that he is the Son of God who died on that cross, who bore the weight, who bore the sins, as Isaiah 53 and 2 Peter 2.24 say, bore our sins on the cross, died, was buried in a tomb, and three days rose, and now he ascended and now waits to come back to judge the world. This is the God we serve, the triune God of Scripture. Again, I want to thank Dr. Edward Dalcor and Andrew Elliott for their time, and thank you all for listening. I, I just yeah, want to say something. Um, yeah, where can, maybe you should tell them where they can get a hold of Andrew and myself. Absolutely. Um, yep. Andrew, yep. why don't you say where you think people can get a hold of you? Absolutely. Um, so right now, my main uh, venture on social media is a TikTok page called Andrew Does Apologetics. I am currently on a pretty prolonged sabbatical from that just for the holidays and the end of the year. Um, when I return to TikTok, something that I have in mind is a complete series. Uh, one thing we didn't do, and if we would have done this, we would have gone like four or five hours. But I want to break down every single uh, proof text that they use in refute and put back into context and show how the passages they use don't uh don't defend oneness doctrine they defend the trinity good we need, Dr. As, much, we need as much information out there for christians you know as much because a lot of christians don't know the difference they endorse td jakes and all these things um sure. for me uh, keep in mind I, I have a book on on um on oneness theology that i wrote um oh i think it's here um, payday comes along i am getting that book <laughs> uh, oh. it's a a definitive look at one of theologies right here you can get it on the website okay and also also but you can also get it in the, and this deals with a lot of the passages that we talked about uh deals with um uh it's an affirmation of the trinity and refutation main refutation of oneness also i co-authored a book with my friend um brilliant scholar anthony rogers and some other people it's um it's a book called it's an academic book our god is triune edited by michael our friend michael burgess um you can get these books on the website please visit the website at christiandefense.org christiandefense.org um, okay. and um yeah if you have any questions i answer all the questions any question i get i always try, try to even if it's in capital letters and it's some kind of scolding or something <laughs> hey man and you also have a, a youtube channel as well correct dr Dalcor? yeah i'm still uh yeah i i do there i don't know how much content i'm constantly making i just have to load them up but the, yeah we do um i think i'm i think the link may be on the website or you can just type in edward delcor uh, absolutely YouTube. Absolutely. And I will post a link to both of these guys um, where you can contact them in the description uh, as soon as this thing goes live. So, gentlemen, uh, any final thoughts, any closing closing words before we get out of here? We'll have to do it again. Absolutely. And we'd love Absolutely. to have you back. Andrew? Yeah, it's a, same as Dr. Dalcor. All right, guys, gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to CSG. We will see you next time. Good night. God bless. 
and stay safe.